So, <clears throat> for most of us, it's been a long day of practice today of trying one's best, of staying in there as best as one could possibly be. Amidst perhaps some degree of fatigue, some degree of restlessness, some degree of doubt, either in yourself or in the practice. And everyone has heard the instructions at this point over and over again about being mindful. You know, the instructions, we try to say it in creative ways, but basically the instructions are to be mindful, to be present. And yet, at the same time as one has heard the instructions and has been trying one's best and has been in there to the best of one's ability throughout the day-to-day, one can easily have the feeling, at least at times, that nothing is changing. Or, if not nothing is changing, not enough is changing. This is usually so because of non-acceptance. We can know what our experience is. We can recognize what is happening. We think we're being mindful. And we are being mindful to some degree, but we're not being fully mindful because oftentimes this is where we get hung up, is around acceptance and non-acceptance. Because there's a really big difference between knowing our experience and accepting our experience. And there can be a huge gap in between knowing and accepting. So this is really what I would like to speak about this evening is acceptance and transformation. And I'll define my terms as I go along. I'd like to first read you something uh, that was said by a man named Nisargadatta Maharaj who lived in India very long, not that long ago actually, some time ago, he's dead now, but um, was quite free, and he he wrote this. By watching yourself in your daily life with alert interest, with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, because it is there, you encourage the deep to come to the surface and enrich your life and consciousness with its captive energies. This is the great work of awareness. It removes obstacles and releases energies by understanding the nature of life and mind. Intelligence is the door to freedom, and alert attention is the mother of intelligence. The path of meditation is indeed a path of awareness. And awareness or mindfulness can be broken up into three different components. The first is recognition or acknowledgement. The second is accepting or allowing. And the third is interest and understanding. And out of interest and understanding comes transformation. 
What I mean by transformation when I use this word transformation is understanding things as they really are, as they actually are. And maybe more importantly, understanding who we really are. Really looking beyond the veils and the obstacles that cloud the heart, that cloud the mind, so that we can truly see who we really are. Transformation is freeing the heart from its torments. This is what all beings want in this world, is for a heart free of torments. And the result of a heart free from its torments is inner freedom. So what is acknowledgement or recognition? What is acceptance and what is interest? Acknowledgement means recognizing what is happening inwardly right here and now. now. So from a meditative point of view, it's acknowledging with great honesty what is actually going on. And, you know, it's a bit of a shock, especially when one first begins to practice. Two, know to begin to even see what is happening inwardly. One teacher said it was something like one insult after another. You know? And sometimes, especially in the beginning, we get used to this as we go along, and it doesn't, doesn't feel so insulting. But sometimes it's just, you know, for those of you who are really new, it can seem like a bit of a shock. So it's recognizing what is happening inwardly in the here and now. Aizumi Shikobi, a Japanese woman, said, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. This is a huge aspect of our meditative journey, is knowing ourselves completely, no part left out. In this body-mind process, what can be known? Because it's not esoteric at all. Right here, right now, in this body that we all can experience, in this mind that each one of us can experience, what can be known? Not thought about, not described, but known right here and right now. How is the body right now? Not the world of appearance, not image, nothing like this. From the inside, how is the body? Experiencing the body from the inside. How is it right now? Is it tense? Is it relaxed? Is there heaviness? Is there lightness? just to know the body and not to leave any of the body out. How is the mind right now? What thought is going through your mind right now? One can listen for a little bit and then 
the mind can be off and running. What thought is happening right now? What are the emotions? What's the emotional life right here and right now? What are the intentions? You know, this has everything to do with knowing the mind. Is the mind contracted? Is the mind spacious? Is the mind agitated? Is the mind peaceful? Just to simply know is Aizumi Shikobi's encouragement. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. After recognition and acknowledgement, acceptance is the next step. And if you remember what Nisargadatta Maharaj said, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, by watching yourself in your daily life with alert interest, with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, because it is there, You encourage the deep to come to the surface and enrich your life and consciousness with its captive energies. This is the great work of awareness. It removes obstacles and releases energies by understanding the nature of life and mind. Intelligence is the door to freedom and alert attention is the mother of intelligence. So just this little part of it in full acceptance of whatever may emerge. And we have no idea what is going to emerge as we sit here doing nothing. It is possible to know what is emerging without accepting what is emerging. Other words for acceptance, because sometimes we can get a little hung up on this word and it can mean other than what it's supposed to mean. So other words for acceptance that might be Um, easier are allowing, Um, making room for, making space for, opening to, having a non-judgmental relationship towards, relaxing into, non-resistance. All of these are the same thing. All of these mean acceptance. Acceptance is an open-hearted attentiveness, not judging what is seen. If we're always judging what is seen, we won't want to see. So really this encouragement of ourselves not to judge what we see so that we will be able to see all parts of ourselves, leaving no part out. The understanding in practice is that seeing is always positive. We're always allowing the unconscious to become conscious. And as this happens, we are less pushed around by our habits and our patterns. But if we don't see them, there is always going to be this inner sense of pressure, this inner sense of being compelled to move in a variety of ways that is not freedom. So from the perspective of practice, seeing is always a good thing. And then there needs to be acceptance and open-hearted attentiveness.
with the attitude of being willing to understand, not to condemn, not to cling to, and not to try to get rid of. If this is our attitude, if this is why we're practicing, to see the truth of things, to try to understand how things are, instead of all our other agendas and expectations and intentions that we can have, this is really what stands us in good stead. This willingness to understand, to see the truth of things. Accepting ourselves as we are and not some ideal about how we should be. Because we always, always should be otherwise. You know, sometimes just from moment to moment, we think that we should be otherwise according to cultural expectations, according to how we brought up our education, our childhood, what somebody told us that, you know, meant a lot to us. All these ideas about how we should be. And the fact is, we're all a little bit on the odd side. (laughs) All of us. Someone wrote to Tofu Roshi, who was one of my great teachers in life. Dear Tofu Roshi, I am weird. Can I help it? (laughs) Signed, Anonymous. (laughs) Dear Anon, I would have to make your acquaintance before I could answer your question. Were you born weird, or did you later become so? In any case, the most important thing is to accept yourself as you are, assuming, of course, that you first take care of your personal grooming and hygiene. (laughs) I beg you to accept yourself as you are. Buddhist practice is what you may call a come-as-you-are party. So this retreat is a come-as-you-are retreat. I know it doesn't always feel like a party but a come-as-you-are retreat. And it's really, it's not, you know, it's not anybody else telling you how you should be. It's ourselves. So looking at the different ways from moment to moment that there is this inner rejection of all parts of oneself. Acceptance is metta is loving-kindness, is sustained loving-kindness. It's an unconditional loving-kindness. Some of you are familiar with um, kind of um, like sort of, sometimes he's like a sage and sometimes he's the foolish person, Mula Nasruddin. Mula Nasruddin decided to plant some flowers. He prepared the soil and planted some seeds. However, when the flowers came up, Dandelions came up as well. There were more dandelions than flowers. Nasruddin asked every gardener he knew what to do, and he tried every method known to get rid of them, but nothing worked. Finally, he made a journey to speak to the best gardener in the area. This gardener had counseled many gardeners before and suggested a variety of remedies to Nasruddin. Nasruddin had tried them all. Nasruddin and the gardener sat together in silence for some time. Finally, the gardener looked at Nasruddin and said, Well then, I suggest you learn to love them. (laughs) You know, this is really what we need to do in our life, in our practice, is 
truly to learn how to love what we call weeds. In the realm of meditation, whatever arises inwardly is okay. Whatever arises is okay. Because unconditional really means unconditional. You know, some things we welcome and we feel quite skilled with and, okay, I can be unconditional with you. And then we hit a, a spot, a place, you know, an area. And it's so hard to be unconditional. But this is really what is asked of us in this practice, invited of us, is to see if we can be truly unconditional with, with that which seems inwardly acceptable to us, as well as with that which seems utterly unacceptable to us. Being aware of the ways that we compare ourselves to others or with the ways that we compare ourselves to ourselves. You know, some image that we have from some experience from the past. You know, both are very interesting kinds of things to pick up on. And it's so interesting in a retreat environment to see what we compare ourselves to, you know, because we're not um, seeing one another in, you know, wonderful, thriving relationships. We're not seeing one another in our, our work life being this and having this kind of status or, you know, low status or high status or anything like that. I mean, we're all just going around schlumpy. And we tend to compare ourselves with the oddest of things, how someone walks, as if there's one way to walk that's better than another way. How one person eats, whether they eat more slowly is maybe more holy than if they, you know, eat, just eat. Um, it's an interesting thing because that pattern of comparing is there. You know, so wherever there's a pattern, and it's, it's such an interesting thing about being on a retreat, it gets highlighted and it detaches to anything. That's the interesting thing to see. You know, it's happening in our daily life, maybe in um, more obvious ways, but we also believe in it in our daily lives more, more obviously as well. And in this kind of environment where it's so spare, it's so just what it is, we can see how the same patterns are there. They'll, they'll just get stuck onto anything. And if you can have a bit of a sense of humor about it, it's wonderful because what it gets stuck onto is so clearly off the wall. You know, <laughs> if I might say. You know? I mean, the comparing that we do, we have no idea what the other person's experience is, and yet we know. You know, we absolutely know, and, you know, fall short in that knowing. You know? So, same patterns are there, just getting stuck on different objects. Now, it is really hard to accept all aspects of being. And we can have this as an aspiration, and I think we need to have this aspiration, but when we get into the kinds of real crunches that we get into, you know, we can here accept things as they are, you know, try to allow for, make room for your experience. And it just, we just, you know, hear an inner scream, I won't, I can't, 
how can I be asked to do this? It's impossible, you know. Or it's not even in words, it's just the body is enormously tight. This practice is remarkable in that there's no way out of practicing. There's always a way to practice. No breaks. There's always a way to practice. When we find ourselves in that kind of a crunch and we can't accept, no problem. Accepting non-acceptance. <laughs> because then we are actually still practicing. Yeah? It's not idealistic. It's not up to some kind of standard. You know, it's not perfect. Accepting non-acceptance is just as good. Because, again, it doesn't really matter what the object is. It doesn't matter what we're accepting. It's the acceptance that matters. So always there's a way in, if we can find it. We are practicing a middle path. And this middle path is the path between avoidance and dwelling. Bodhidharma's teacher said, when I inhale, I don't dwell upon things. When I exhale, I don't pursue thoughts. Thus I breathe the sutra as it isness, hundreds of thousands of millions of times. When I inhale, I don't dwell upon things. When I exhale, I don't pursue thoughts. Thus I breathe the sutra, which simply means discourse, as it isness. That's the whole of the discourse, as it isness. It's very short. Hundreds of thousands of millions of times. There is a difference between, really quite a huge difference, between acceptance and resignation. And it can look somewhat the same. Resignation says, this is how things are. This is how things have been. This is how things always have been. This is how things always will be. Case closed. That's resignation. Resignation comes out of the past. It comes out of that which is old. It comes from a deeply conditioned mental state. And inherent within resignation is a sense of powerlessness, of helplessness, of passivity. This is not acceptance, it's resignation. It's the belief that things will never change. Instead of accepting that things are as they are in this moment. And that's always the key. Yeah? That makes it non-resignation. Accepting that things are as they are in this moment. Acceptance is the new. It doesn't come from a conditioned mental state. It doesn't come out of the past. It's here. It's now. What is seeing conditions is unconditioned. What is seeing the conditioned is unconditioned. And acceptance is in no way the end point of the path. It is the very beginning of transformation. 
Acceptance can lead to a wise action. That very beautiful serenity prayer, changing what can be changed, accepting what cannot, and discerning between the two. So certainly, acceptance does not mean not attempting to change what can be changed. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to tell the difference. I was in Burma this past January, and I wasn't exactly sure whether to go or not because of the events in the fall and not knowing whether I would be a help or a hindrance. But I finally did decide to go, and I was really, really happy that I did. Um, my friend Carol and I were able to raise some funds, some dana, to um, bring to some nunneries there, which function as orphanages as well. And um, the rest of our time we spent uh, sitting and walking in a monastery. Uh, the teacher, were, we both feel quite affectionate and close to this particular teacher. So I could tell you some really um, beautiful and inspiring and stories of courage and stories of um, you know, great beauty. Um, but I'm going to tell you a very mundane story instead. Um, I was there with my friend Carol, and we went into the monastery, and we tried to get the key for our room so that we could have a room to stay for the time that we were there. And um, the abbot was away for the day in town, and so we were told to go to this room, just this room, and to kind of stay put, not go out, stay in this room until the abbot came back. Someone would come and get us. So we went to this particular room, and we spent kind of a, many hours um, with one another in this room. And we were resting, and we were practicing, we were sitting some. Um, it was hard to do any walking, you know, four steps forward, four steps back, but we were, um, we were sitting, and uh, we were chatting at times. And we started getting like the sense of one another's chatting and commenting. We started commenting about the room. We um, began to notice what this particular room was like. We, one of us said, well, it's really dirty. You know, it's just a really dirty room. And we weren't expecting to stay in this room. You know, we were just staying there. And, and then when the abbot came back, we were going to get the key to the room. So, so we were very unattached while we were making these comments. You know? But we said, uh, you know, the room is really dirty. And um, the spiders are, are, are really big. <laughs> You know, there's always tons of spiders in Burma, but these spiders were really big. And um, uh, what else was happening? The, the bed squeaked a lot. So we were just commenting. We, you know, we, we didn't expect to stay here, but we were talking a little bit about how in rooming together, um, if the bed is really squeaky, you know, if it makes a lot of noise, if one of us gets up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, the other person is bound to wake up, this kind of thing. So just, you know, just pleasantly chatting about, about the, um, the non-merits of this room. <laughs> <laughs> and one of us at some point said, it's got a bad vibe, whatever that means. <laughs> I have no idea. But this came out of one of our mouths. I won't, I won't put responsibility on either one of us. We were, we were doing this together. So we, um, 
you know, we were we you know had this had this kind of feeling about the room. And um, then it was time, someone came to get us, and it was time to go to the Abbot, and we were excited we're going to get the real room. <laughs> so we, we went and, um, you know, did our thing with the Abbot, and um, discussed things a bit, you know, about this and that, and about um, how, many, how many retreatants were in the retreat center. There were fewer than usual. So at first we thought we could each get our own room, but that was dashed really quickly. But that was okay. We have room together before, so we... we know how to do it together. That was very good. That was okay. So anyway, we got the, uh, the key and we, um, we went to the room, the room. And we opened the door to this room and looked in and we looked at each other, you know, oh no, because this room was dirtier. <laughs> and there was a little bit of a, um, of a bathroom there, which is supposed to be a nice thing. But the bathroom, the sink was duct taped to the wall. And there was a window, but the whole entire window was duct taped. I guess there were no curtains. So there was just duct tape on the window. And the beds were really close together, much closer together than in the first room. We were already comparing. Uh, and, and Carol was quite sick, so she was thinking, you know, if our beds were close together, she was going to give me what she got, what she had. And I was thinking, you know, if the beds were close together, I was going to get what she had. And in this second room, the spiders were bigger. <laughs> so we thought, what to do? You know, it's a monastery, it's not a hotel. You accept what you're given. However, we knew that there were fewer retreatants than usual in the monastery. And we thought, okay, let's, you know, let's, this is only our first room. The first room didn't count. So this was our first room. So let's, let's just go see. You know, let's just go see what the abbot has in mind and, and if, um, if anything else can work out. So we walked over back to the abbot and very, very kind person looking at us quite bemused. You know, he was kind of, he's kind of, was a little, we've been there before, that's all I can say. So <laughs> a little bit bemused. And um, we said, you know, is there another room for these reasons? We didn't mention the spiders, but we, we said, is there another possible room because of the beds being so close together? And um, so he gave us a, a key for another room. This is our third room. So we um, found our way to the third room. We're excited, you know, we're going to the real room. And we opened the door, and it was dirtier than the second room. You know, dirtier than the second room. Um, the, um, the bed was duct taped this time. <laughs> the bed was actually duct taped together. So, you know, I sat on it, and it was swayed. And so we were thinking that not only would we wake up, if the other person had to wake up to go to the bathroom, but we would probably fall off in the middle of the night. Plus, the spiders were huge in this third room. So we thought what to do. We trotted back to the abbot one more time. And we said, you know, we bowed three times, and we said, may we please have the first room. And he was so kind, he gave us the first room. Now, what was so interesting about being in this first room for the rest of the time is that gradually it got better and better. You know, the, the, the spiders were smaller, and we thought, well, they're, they're just kind of really staying in the corners. Um, 
you know, generally the rooms are too hot or too cold. This room was perfect. It was perfectly um, cool when it was super hot out. It was perfectly warm when it was quite chilly out. Generally, there are a few days when there is quite loud chanting all night in, in the monastery. And in this particular room, you couldn't hear a thing. No chanting whatsoever. It was a wonderful thing. It got better and better as time went on. Same room. Same exact room. So I don't know what the moral of the story is here. <laughs> Other than it takes a lot of discernment to know what to change. How to know if you are truly accepting something? I want to mention a few things that might be helpful. One question to ask if you, you know, kind of aspire to acceptance but you're not sure is to ask if time is involved. Is time involved? Because time equals an agenda. And the agenda is to get rid of. You know, the agenda is to get rid of. So when thoughts of time are happening that are attached to and believed in, as in how long will this last, you know, <laughs> then this is a signal that resistance is happening, that non-acceptance <laughs> is occurring. You know, thoughts of time, they're very conditioned, so it's not a problem that they arise. It's really just key to not believe in them. A second question might be, is negotiation involved? As in, I'll be aware of this so that it will go away. This is (laughs) non-acceptance. I will be aware of this so that it will go away. It's like one is very sophisticated. You know, we, we know that awareness is good. We're okay being aware. But there is this kind of hidden agenda only if what I'm aware of does what I want, which is to disappear. Acceptance is opening to the out-of-control nature of our inner experiences. Understanding that the only thing in this world that is possible to control is where we choose to place our intention. The only thing in this world that is possible to control is where one chooses to place one's attention. And this we have quite a lot of choice about. It's the difference between being lost in versus aware of. I'd like to mention just a few methods and ways of practicing acceptance that might help. One question I think that comes in very handy is this question of can I make room for this? Just to keep this alive when there is difficulty, when there is discomfort, when there is the unpleasant. Can I make room for this? Another question might be, can you allow this to fill the room? You know, which is kind of going against instinct. Our instinct is to try to get whatever we don't like to disappear. And instead, going against instinct is allowing the emotion, allowing the feeling to be as big as possible. This doesn't mean thinking. It doesn't mean thinking about it. It means dropping the story and just simply allowing the mental state to be exactly what it is. 
I was working with someone back home in Cambridge, working with this method of can you allow um, the difficult emotion she was experiencing to fill the room. And we were in a very small interview room at the time. So um, she liked this practice and you know, a little bit nervous about it, but she allowed it to fill the interview room. That was okay. And then, you know, can you allow it to fill the building? Okay, she was all right allowing it to fill the building, and she was feeling more spacious all the time and more letting go and more acceptance as she was doing this. And then she, I said, maybe make it bigger, so, you know, state of Massachusetts, and then um, uh, state of New Hampshire was fine as well, and she kept enlarging her circle. Unfortunately, <laughs> I asked her to make it even bigger than that, and she hit Maine, and she loves Maine. So she, she kind of hit this place where she wasn't able to let this very difficult feeling permeate Maine because of her love for Maine. But she did her best. Another question is, and this is not an easy question, but sometimes it's a really good one. It's not easy at all. Would it be okay if this were to be so for the rest of my life? Yeah. Would, it be okay, would it be okay if this were to be so for the rest of my life? Because some things we are working with in this way. Could I accommodate it? Yeah. It's not an easy question, but it's an important question as well. It doesn't mean it will last for the rest of one's life. It doesn't mean, of course, that it will last beyond the moment. Who knows? But this question is a way to work with resistance and to open to acceptance. And the last method to mention tonight is to be aware of whatever it is that is difficult, as well as the environment around you. you know? So to let what is difficult be difficult, to acknowledge it and to accept it, to make space for it, to make room for it, but at the same time to be aware of the environment and you know, to be aware of sounds, to be aware of the breeze against the skin, to be aware of other people in the room, you know, just to encourage a sense of spaciousness. All of these methods have to do with encouraging a greater degree of allowing and accepting so that we are not caught in resistance, which makes whatever is difficult harder, actually tends to strengthen what is difficult when we are resistant. So acceptance, whatever way we can get to it, is the way out. Acceptance is absolutely necessary, and it must cross over into wisdom. Acceptance does not mean condoning. It doesn't mean passively accepting unacceptable situations. Inwardly, it means it doesn't mean aligning with. What it means is getting close enough to understand, intimate with, so that investigation actually becomes possible. If we're holding things at arm's length, we won't be able to be intimate enough to be able to investigate, to be able to see into.
We need to be intimate enough with our experiences, close enough to our experiences, accepting enough of our experiences so that we can see clearly for ourselves, what do I want to cultivate? What do I want to encourage? Yeah? And what do I want to let wither? What do I want to let move on? This is a wisdom question. And this leads us into interest and understanding, wisdom and discernment. The question is sometimes asked about a seeming paradox in practice. And this is sometimes how the question goes. The teachings say to accept things as they are. And yet, at the same time, we are directed to know the difference between the unwholesome and the wholesome. So which is true? You know, to accept things as they are or to know the difference between the wholesome or the unwholesome. To accept, which means acceptance of the unwholesome, and unwholesome means fragmented and misery producing, unwholesome qualities that we find within ourselves, or to change, to do our best to change the unwholesome into the wholesome. And then just another way to put this same question, something like this. I read Buddhist books which imply that qualities such as equanimity or loving kindness or compassion, things like this, are preferred states of being. You know, preferred states of being. And then I read or I hear the teaching of just be mindful of being agitated or angry or afraid or whatever it might be. And the question, you know, is what's a yogini to do? The teachings point out the way, I'm answering this question now, the teachings point out the way, mindfulness is the way. Mindfulness means contact with our experiences. Out of contact comes learning, and out of learning comes wisdom, and out of wisdom comes inner freedom. One fundamental aspect of wisdom is to discern between the wholesome and the unwholesome. This is a definition. There are other definitions of wisdom, but this is a definition of wisdom. We can hear this teaching of just accept as being somewhat new agey, you know, like I'm okay, you're okay, which is certainly not true. I mean, of course, fundamentally, it's true. But in other ways, it's not true. We can hear equanimity or loving kindness or compassion or whatever it might be is wholesome. And so veer towards the wholesome. Um, There is a difference between the wholesome and the unwholesome. And we can hear this kind of teaching as being kind of, um, I don't know, puritanical or confining rules about how we should be standards about how one should be. And really, it's the understanding that the wholesome equals happiness. It equals the skillful. It equals the wise and the compassionate. And unwholesome equals that which is misery-producing, that which is unskillful, unwise, not compassionate, and harmful to ourselves and to others. So it doesn't have to do with being right or conventional or fitting into something. It has to do with 
finding out for ourselves what is happiness producing and what brings about misery for ourselves and for others. And so, as I'm sure you can see, both are true. Accepting the unwholesome leads to transformation within ourselves. Accepting inwardly that which is difficult to accept leads to transformation because then we are motivated to let it go. We are motivated to allow it to dissolve. Acceptance is essential. With acceptance, we can begin to see more clearly into impermanence. We can begin to see more clearly into identification, how we take our experience to be, our experiences to be who we are, you know, in some kind of solid way. We can see the variety of ways that we define who we are simply because of that which is coming and going in our minds. We can see the kinds of stories that we're attaching to. It is not possible to see what is clearly so without first accepting what is seen. Ah, let me say it in another way. It's not possible to see what is clearly without first accepting what is seen. In other words, clarity comes out of acceptance. The training is to remain undistracted, to acknowledge, to accept, and to learn, to recognize, to allow for, and to know in our own hearts, in our own being, what is worth cultivating and what is worth letting go of. What do we want to cultivate and what do we want to wither, let wither? This way is the way of transformation. I'd like to just end with something by Rilke. We have no reason to harbor any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to learn to love them. And only if we arrange our lives in accordance with the principle which tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, what now appears to us as the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. Let's just take a moment and, and sit together.
May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have openness of heart. May all beings live in harmony and in inner freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.